what I what I wish to see, that what I hope we'll accomplish as an ecosystem, is actually solving you know real problems for real people. As much as I love you know all that we've built so far, I kind of feel that we are we've built stuff for people within the ecosystem. I mean you know, DeFi or, or speculation is not, in my opinion, the most interesting use case. It's not solving anybody's problems. NFTs are, are great, but they're not solving anybody's problem. I do feel the blockchain as a technology has an amazing you know, potential to have a real impact on the world. And so what I hope is that as an ecosystem, we'll actually start you know, solving real problems for real people. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Devs Do Something. I'm your host, Sam Flamini, and today's guest is Julian Nisset, founder of Argent. Argent is a non-custodial smart contract wallet that aims to improve UX by an order of magnitude across the entirety of Web3. Julian has also become an expert and really a thought leader on account abstraction, which is a hot topic today and something that is going to be very important for getting adoption uh, in this next generation of, of products that we're building in this industry. Uh, so in this episode, we deep dive account abstraction. We deep dive how Argent works under the hood and then what app developers need to understand about all of this stuff, account abstraction, Argent, smart contract wallets, all this good stuff to build that next generation of Web3 products. Julian is, uh, is also an ex-quantum physicist, so we got to ask him some fun cryptography questions as well. Uh, we go into, in, into his background and things, which, which is also always fun. Uh, so I think, look, if, if you're interested in these topics and if you're interested in improving UX for users or just understanding the current state of account abstraction and what it's all about, then this episode is for you. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy. Are you a DAO or crypto native business with salaried employees? Or do you perhaps work for one? If so, whether you're a team of five or 500, your organization can save time and money by streaming salaries with Superfluid, who also happens to be the beloved producer of this podcast. With salary streaming, your management team no longer has to worry about executing multi-sig operations every month or manually executing hundreds of separate transactions to pay their team. Contributors and employees, on the other hand, get paid by the second, which, to be honest with you, is a pretty killer benefit on the receiving end. Those of us getting paid via stream can connect our wallet to the Superfluid dashboard and see our balances ticking up in real time. It's kind of mesmerizing and feels like you're being jacked 10 years in the future. When you're paid in a stream, it flows in perpetuity until your team needs to adjust compensation, which effectively puts Web3 payroll on autopilot. Salary streaming is easy to set up thanks to our recent integration with CoinShift, the leading crypto treasury management platform. In just a few clicks, you can securely set up payroll for hundreds of employees in just a single transaction, all from CoinShift's dashboard. If this sounds like something you're interested in exploring, you should visit superfluid.finance/payroll and book a salary streaming demo today. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Let's get onto the episode. All right, so we're here today with Julian. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for being here. This is going to be a fun conversation about 
uh, your work at Argent, account abstraction, and then some other cool stuff I'm sure we'll get into. Um, before we get into some of that, though, the first question we like to ask everyone who comes on is how they got into the industry. How did you get involved in crypto? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. So, um, so I think my my first encounter with crypto was actually with Bitcoin, probably in two thousand and nine. I was still doing my a PhD in quantum information in in Brussels, I think. And one of the postdoc there was really excited about that, you know, that new stuff, Bitcoin. He tried to explain it to me, he showed me, you know, he could buy stuff on the internet. Didn't get it, you know, felt like it was something for nerds and completely ignored it. Few years later, another friend tells me about this new blockchain called Ethereum, how excited it is this time, you know, you can do, you can program stuff. Again, I go on the Ethereum website, don't get it, you know, move to something else. And, and that brings us to, I think, 2017, uh, where Gerald, one of my two co-founders now, we were working for different companies, different startups, but we were actually sh sharing a co-working space in Brussels. And we, we started, you know, exchanging, you know, information about cool technologies. And so at some point, he brings something about blockchain, you know, he's, he, he finds it interesting. So, you know, he shares me a few papers. And then, and so we, we really got into it from the, really technical side. I mean, like the technology itself got us excited. Um, and then at some point, we really felt that, you know, we wanted to, to jump in that, you know, that wave that was coming. And so at that point, I was kind of stuck in a startup that wasn't going anywhere. Him and, and Itamar, my, the third co-founder, had actually sold their previous startups. And also they were thinking about their next move. And so we kind of felt, okay, this is very interesting. It's like, it's like the internet of, you know, of, of the late 90s, which were a bit too young to embrace. And so we felt that this technology would be like the equivalent. And this time we were, I would say, at the, at the right time, at the right place. And so we decided to say, you know, okay, let's let's jump in. Let's do something in that field. We, we knew it was really early, but we wanted to be at the forefront of that wave. And we said, okay, let's do something, be part of that movement, and then we'll find, you know, something cool to do uh, as we get into it. And so that was, yeah, I would say early 2017, mid-2017. And then we gradually, you know, decided to to go full-time and, and start at Argent. Nice. I love it. Um, I'll, I'll ask a little bit about the, the Argent maybe founding story in a second, but so you study quantum information, right? Your, your Twitter bio says ex-quantum physicist or quantum researcher or something like that. Uh, out of curiosity, what, what were you studying? Uh, it, was it completely unrelated to to anything related to like cryptography and, and things that have helped you today? Or was there some subtle connection? I would say there's a subtle connection. So yeah, I, I studied engineering in physics. After that, I did a PhD. So in quantum information and quantum communication, but like really a theoretical, uh, it's a theoretical physics, not doing experiments. And actually one of the first, you know, application of quantum information uh, is something people call quantum cryptography or quantum key distribution. And because actually using the properties of quantum system, you can start to do, you know, novel stuff. And I think one, one area of application is related to cryptography, because on one side, you have uh, a researcher that showed that using a, a quantum algorithm, Scholes algorithm, you could actually factor a large number much more efficiently than a classical computer do. And the factorization of large number is at the root of most of the cryptographic primitives that we use today such as RSA. So basically, they show that if we had a, like a full large-scale quantum computer, we could basically break most of the cryptography that we use today. 
And at the same time, some other researchers show that using the properties of quantum physics, you could actually do some, uh, you know, cryptographic protocols that are not doable with a quantum computer, uh, with a classical computer. So it's kind of like quantum physics provide both the poison of what we have today and a potential cure. Uh, and so, of course, working in that field, you are kind of around classical cryptography and cryptography in general. I wouldn't say I focused on that specifically, but, you know, I was kind of forced to be, you know, around that for a few years. Um, and then actually after my PhD, I did a postdoc in the US. Then I came back to Brussels to, to launch a what's called a spin-off. So a startup trying to valorize some of the IP that we had developed actually in the lab. And our, our startup was focusing around a random number. So generating random numbers out of quantum physics. And again, the main application of random numbers is cryptography. So again, gradually from that, I started to be a bit more and more involved into classical cryptography and cryptography in general. And so, yes, all this, I guess, you know, served me when we started Argent, but there's no no real direct link. Interesting. Yeah, I, as, as a bit of a sidebar, I, I find this, this cat and mouse game that is cryptography to be very interesting. Uh, how far off are we from good enough quantum computing to 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 the point where we we really need to to figure out the defense side uh, again honestly i i wouldn't you know i wouldn't know i wouldn't be able to give you a, a correct answer because i've been you know kind of away from that for now more than 10 years uh, i do feel that i mean we are making progress it's honestly you know i, I wouldn't be able to say this. I would, if i was to guess out of nothing i would probably say you know 10 15 years uh, to have something that we can start to really use. Uh, but again, you know, that's the public sector. Where is the private sector? Where is the military? It's always a bit hard to tell. Uh, but yeah, so I do f I, I do feel that it will come at some point for sure, uh, but we are still not there yet yeah. from an engineering point of view. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, so you're going through this journey, right? You you end up at a startup. You want to, you're interested in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum. You have... Your co-founders, you guys have kind of gotten together, and you you said something interesting, and I hear this a decent amount of times when I talk to people that have been founders. We just decided to go in, and we were we were looking for something interesting to work on, and then we ended up with this thing, uh, which in your case was Argent. Uh, what was what was the I guess the founding idea around Argent? Was it very similar to this idea of smart contract wallets that you guys ended up working on? Did it sort of something different and ended up? in the place you guys are at now via the result of lots of pivots. How did you guys initially come up with the idea and, and, and pursue it? Yeah. So my, my two co-founders, Itamar and Gerald, so they'd been building a few startups before and they were really consumer focused. So they built a, an application called Peak, which was a brain training mobile application. And I think they had like 60 million you know, downloads or users. So quite a bit popular. So they were, they were really good at like consumer products. And so when we started looking into the blockchain, of course, we wanted to find a vertical and do something for, for users, for consumers. Uh, and so we started reading, started to you know, play with a few ideas. And what we rapidly realized, that was like you know, 2017, is that there were actually people working on like low-level stuff, the protocol. And then there were people trying to, to find like new use cases, thinking about like decentralized Twitter and so on. But we, we quickly realized there was a huge gap in between. There was no good ways for actually users to link between the protocol and these applications. Because what we realized is that wallets were really bad at that time. I mean, bad in the sense that they would never be, you know, user-friendly. They were hard to understand. You needed to understand all these concepts of, you know, transaction fees, private keys, seed phrase, gas, and so on. 
So we kind of felt that it was way too early to focus on the consumer application that first someone needed to crack the wallet space. And so we said, okay, but actually let's do that. You know, we, we know we know how to build products for consumer. And if we want this ecosystem to grow, there needs to be a good way to interact with it, a simple and secure way to interact with it. Uh, and so let's do something around wallets. Um, I think that was kind of the, the initial idea. And so we, we, we started thinking of, you know, how can we approach that? Uh, and I think, again, being kind of, you know, newbies in that field, it's not like we'd been around for, you know, for a long time. I mean, we really saw all these friction points as kind of nonsense. Like for me, for example, having worked a little bit in, in, in security and cryptography, I mean, you look at the internet, we've tried to convince people for 30 plus years not to write their password on a piece of paper. And then you join that, that internet of, of money. And the first thing you require to do is write your password on a piece of paper, not one time, but five times in case, you know, something go wrong. I mean, all this made no sense. And so we felt that they should, you know, they, they must be a different way. Uh, and so started to think about these ideas, looking around. We wrapped, I mean, we kind of felt that the, the best way was to use smart contract because you could put some of the logic, you know, at the blockchain level. And you could, and so for example, we, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say we came up with the ideas. I think we kind of picked different ideas around and put them together, but we kind of, Concrete, concretize or implemented these ideas of, of social recovery, for example. I don't think anybody was talking about social recovery, but there was a few papers around Bitcoin with the ability to have different keys that play different roles. And so we started playing with all this and came with the idea of, okay, actually using a smart contract and, and different keys, you can get rid of seed phrase because there's a solution if the user loses his main key, there's actually a, a protocol or a way for him to get back access to, to his wallet. So, uh, and then, so we tried to look at all these problems and really realize that using a smart contract was the solution. The problem of gas, okay, using a smart contract, you can do meta transaction and you can abstract this. So, I mean, all, uh, it, it kind of felt obvious for us that using a smart contract was the solution. I think at that time, People, a lot of people thought it was a, a bad idea. It was around the time of the Parity Act. I mean, smart contract, you know, a multi-sig where I would not say not that hot. Uh, and so a lot of people thought that, you know, that would never work. But again, I think being a newbie in the field, some of these, you know, these, I don't know to say that, but some of these assumptions that a lot of people have, actually you don't have them because you, like, you look at it with a fresh eye. Uh, and so... You know, we, we decided, okay, I mean, for us, the only way is to use a smart contract. This, this idea of seed phrase will never work. So let's try to crack that and, and make it a, you know, a good product. And so that's how we started Arjun. And, and it, it's really funny because if you look at how we describe Arjun, I would say almost the very first day, because we did something very cliche. We locked ourselves in a room for, I think, 24 hours and we had posted and markers and we kind of wrote all possible ideas. And, and actually everything that Arjun is today was kind of written down on that, on that initial, initial day. Uh, so no, Arjun actually hasn't changed much. It's still the same vision and we're still pushing for, to make it happen. Very cool. Very cool. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And I'll come back to some of this stuff you mentioned, right? Uh, like I want to go into how social recovery works and I want to really like do a deep dive into Arjun specifically. But before we do that, I think to give people context, just, just as for context for, for this conversation, this is developer focus, right? We want to make sure that like devs listening to this, get up to speed on what account abstraction is, some of the new EIPs, and then also 
you know, what this world will look like when technologies like Argin are adopted at scale, what that means for DApp developers and all that good stuff. So if you don't mind, I think it'd be interesting to walk through some of the recent EIPs that bring us up to the most recent one, which is EIP, I think 4337 is the, the, right, the right one. I've heard you do this in a couple of other talks where you've kind of traced where kind of abstraction has gone over time. And I think it'd be useful for our listeners if you're able to just kind of trace back from the days you were starting, uh, what were some of those EIPs and proposals over time and how has the thinking around account abstraction evolved from maybe 2018 when you started Arjun to today? So I think the, the idea of account abstraction is actually older than that. And if you look at the literature, I think Vit Vitalik posted something as early as 2016, kind of as a, you know, just, I think, some research idea on how to abstract, uh, I think, abstract nouns and signature verification. Uh, because I think from the first day, it was kind of obvious that it, we needed to have some flexibility in the account model. But of course, when you ship a technology, I mean, you have a, you have a roadmap. And so Ethereum started with the concept of, of EOA. And so to give some context, I mean, this is for developers, so they all know that, but like with an EOA, everything is hard-coded, right? You have a, a private key and a public key as a user, and this is directly linked to an account on-chain because the address of that account is derived from your public key and only the private key can authorize transaction from that account. So you can really see the account on-chain and the key that you have as a user, there are basically two sides of the same thing. They're really one, one object. And all this is outcoded at the, the, the protocol in the EVM. So there's no flexibility. Nonsense must be incremental. The curve that you need to use is SecP 256K1. And you know, the, the signature signing scheme must be ECDSA and so on. All this is, is outcoded. And so of course, I think Vitalik rapidly recognizes that we, we would need to have some flexibility at some point. And so I think in 2016, he proposed something which turned into an EIP, I don't remember the number, but I would say late 2016, early 2017. Um, and then we came late 2017, beginning of 2018, and we implemented, you know, smart contract wallet in parallel with Gnosis, uh, you know, we, which had the Gnosis safe. And in a sense, a smart contract wallet like Argent or Gnosis is a way to abstract some of these things because we also have an internal nonce. You know, you can choose how you, you, you can modify or customize or you validate transaction using one or multiple keys and so on. So I, I see that as a form of, of account abstraction. If you move a bit forward, there's an EIP, I would say one year or around 2020, I think it's 29.98. But again, proposed by Vitalik and some other people still trying to abstract, um, abstract nouns and signature validation. Um, then there is 3074. I think they came, they, these two EIPs, they try to tackle things, but uh, kind of in complementary ways or op opposite ways. Like the first one, 2998, I think, usually when I do a presentation, I have my slide, it's easier to remember these numbers. Uh, but I think this one, the idea is to enable a smart contract to be a, if a first level account, meaning that a smart contract can initiate transaction. Uh, 3078, which came roughly around the same time, takes the complement or the opposite approach. It's let's make a, let's give smart contract functionalities to an EOA. And of course, the idea of this EIP is to turn existing EOAs and give them smart contract or account abstraction features. 
So they kind of try to solve the thing with two complementary or two opposite approach. One is turning a smart contract into top-level account, and the other one is using the only existing top-level account, the OA, and giving them smart contract functionality. Uh, and then fast forward, forward a little bit more to 2021 or 2022, there's ERC4337, which is the latest one and which is getting a lot of attention now. And I think one of the main benefits of this last one is that it's actually an ERC, not an EIP, meaning that it does not require any change to the protocol. All the previous EIPs, with the exception of smart contract wallet like Arjun and Gnosis, they all require you know, a chain of the protocol. You need to introduce new opcodes to enable new functionalities. ERC4337 is very interesting because it tries to enable the feature of account abstraction without requiring any change to the protocol, meaning that we could actually do it now. I mean, th th there's nothing required. We just need to coordinate and it can happen today. And I think one of the reasons it's because there was like the merge, which of course focused a lot of, you know, a lot of the attention, a lot of the energy of the core developers. And the idea was to, let's try to move forward with account abstraction, knowing that we won't be able to include that, you know, in any fork uh, for quite some time. And so they came with the, this, this idea of ERC4337, which from a high level, it's enabling anybody to write a smart contract wallet easily. And what I mean by that is that if you look at it, it's actually very similar to the architecture of the Argent wallet, for example. But the thing is to, with the Argent wallet there, you need to have some kind of an infrastructure to simulate account abstraction. For example, you need to have relayers that will send transaction and subsidize the gas. And that's kind of a, a centralized, first of all, it's a centralized party, let's be honest. And, and also it's, um, it's an infrastructure that is required. You need to have servers and you need to have an infrastructure to make a smart contract wallet. ERC4337 kind of decentralizes that component. And so it makes it easier for anybody to write a smart contract wallet because there's one layer of the stack that you need, which is now uh, handled by the ERC. And it's kind of a, a, a free market to send these transactions. So, so in a nutshell, 4337, it's a, it's a way to make writing smart contract wallet easier. That's really what it is. But, but it's still very similar to Argent, to the Argent wallet today, for example. Right. And there, there are some other things about 4337 that are, that are also, I think, kind of unique in that there's this concept of a user operation and even a, a this is something I've seen Vitalik tweet about, uh, the importance of having a fee market for those user operations. Right. Um, can you just walk our listeners through like what what is meant by user operation, bundling these transactions, all that stuff? So again, coming back to Argent and Nosy Safe, we use meta transactions. So one of the a problem of smart contract wallet is that they cannot initiate transactions. So you always need to have a new way that will actually initiate the transaction for a smart contract wallet. So how we do it on Argent is that the user signs an intention, which is called a meta transaction. This is part of a meta transaction. It signs an intention, sends that to a relayer, so a backend service that will actually execute the transaction and then the wallet pays him back. Uh, but in the case of Argent users, they send that to our own relayers. They can use their own, but you need to send that to a relayer that will accept to make that transaction or not. With the RC4337, you send that intention into a high, uh, like a mempool. 
if you want. A mempool that's, that sits at the application level. So this intention in the case of ERC4337, it's what's called a user operation. And so the user will basically sign that user operation saying, this is what I want to execute on my smart contract wallet. You send that to a network of bundlers, similar to the miners or the nodes that we have today on Ethereum, but it's at, at a higher level. So you send that to this network of bundlers, and then bundlers will collect some of these user operations together and create a bundle, and then they will send that as a transaction to Ethereum. And, they, but, but to, and then they will send that to a specific contract called the entry point, which will orchestrate the execution of, of all these operations. But so the main difference with a smart contract wallet like Argent today is that instead of sending that to a centralized party or to someone, you actually send that to a network of bundlers. And of course, they can decide to execute, uh, to execute that and then you will pay them back. And so there's kind of a, of a, a fee market for that because if there's a lot of operation, bundlers will choose the operation that will accept to pay them more to be executed. Interesting. So within this fee market, would there be a kind of spread between, uh, like if I'm a user and I want to execute something via a smart contract wallet and user operation, would there be some kind of interesting spread between what I would pay there and what I would pay to just execute it on mainnet? Like would like I guess that this fee market would kind of become its own it would become its own separate market, right? Am I understanding that right or am I am I missing something? To be honest, I don't know. But what is sure is that of course the person executing the transaction will need to pay that transaction on the normal Ethereum fee market, right? Because there's always needs to be a transaction. So I think the cost will will either be based on that one or if there's too many user operations, it can be higher. But I don't think you you it, you know it you'll find a way to pay less. Uh, going through that mechanism, then executing directly. Now, of course, by going through that that bundler, that that mempool, multiple operations are bundled into one atomic transaction. And so, of course, there's some you know some mutualization of the cost. But I think it, this is, I mean, it's a small it's a small factor. Executing a transaction on chain, like the base cost is twenty one thousand gas. So yes, you will split that between the different operations. But I don't think that will make a a huge difference. So, it, I mean, it's a good question. I don't know if anybody has, has thoroughly studied that, you know, the mechanics of, of that fee market, but my point of view, I think it will, yeah, it, it will it, it will probably be, uh, yeah, always a bit more expensive. In general, it's a bit more expensive to use a smart contract wallet than a pure EOA because there's logic. There's logic on chain and you need to pay for that. So, uh, but of course you have great benefits because you can improve the UX, you have more security and so on. But, but anyway, yeah, I, I, it's a good question. I would imagine that it would not change much. So if, I, if you were to send it directly to your account or go to that market, I don't think you would gain much. Yeah, well, if, if no one's researching it yet, I'm sure the MEV searchers are already thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. And actually that, that's a good parallel because this bundler, I mean, the, this architecture is, is pretty much inspired by, you know, flashbots. These, the, the bundlers for ERC four three three seven, they they can they are the same as the bundlers for Flashbot. So it's 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 basically the same ID. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't so, realize and, that. And well, it will be coupled. Yeah. Interesting. See, good things. Good things can come out of MEV, right? Yeah. It's economic incentive to to do research, basically. Um. So what, what's interesting about this though uh, is that the the ability to bundle these operations creates some UX improvements, right? Like you you encourage the use of like for example multi call for devs that use Argent, right? Can you, can you walk, can you walk us through like what some of these UX improvements might be? 
if they're there? Yeah, I mean, I think account abstraction in general enables a, a lot of cool stuff, of course, because you can you can really program your account. Uh, so one thing that you mentioned is multi-call. We have, you know, very bullish on that. And that's something that actually we've implemented on, on Argent for two or three years. So if you use the Argent Vault or, or Wallet on L1, you have multi-call because we are a smart contract wallet. The idea of multi-call is to bundle multiple operations in one atomic transaction. And the idea for us came with the infamous, you know, approve and call pattern. If you go on Ethereum and you want to call a DAP and that DAP needs to consume some tokens, you need to first approve these tokens and then you can call the DAP, which will, you know, pull these tokens and execute the action. And so as a user, you have two options. Either you do it once and people used to do that and you approve an infinite amount. So you are not bothered to approve it the next time you come back on the DAP. But if you take a second to think about it, you basically give, you know, like a free pass to the DAP. You, you, you Telling a DAP, you can pull all my token if you want. Unless you've looked at the smart contract and you know it's not a proxy that won't be upgraded and you understand all the logic, it's like giving free lunch to someone. You're basically saying, take whatever you need. So I'm not bothered and my UX, UX is better. So of course, that's terrible. So if you want it to be secure, you need to approve the exact amount that the DAP will consume. But that means that every time you do an action, you need, you need to approve and then to call. So that's two transactions. And so there's basically that trade-off between security and usability. Uh, and DApps used to favor usability at the expense of security. Then people started to realize it was too dangerous. But then there's no good, good, you know, there's no, there's no solution without multi-call that, that, that satisfies both. With a multi-call, you can basically bundle these two operations in one transaction. Because your account is a smart contract, you can tell your smart contract, execute A, and then when you're done, execute B. And so your smart contract will do the approve for the exact amount. And when it's, it's done, we'll call the DAP to execute the action. And all this happens at the, atomically, so in one transaction. So going to Uniswap or any DAP becomes one click. Uh, and that's only approve and call. So we started with that first, uh, three or four years ago, and then we pushed it further because then you can bundle a large amount of, of call in, in, in one operation. And for example, you know, today we are very active in, in, you know, in the StackNet ecosystem because we have the main wallet there, Collagen X, and their multi-call are native because StackNet launched with native account abstraction, and we can come back to that later. But there are people starting to experiment with this idea of multi-call. And so, for example, you have NFT marketplace with the concept of a shopping cart, which I think is very cool. You go to the NFT marketplace and you select the NFTs that you want to buy. And at, at the end of your interaction, you say, okay, now I'm going to buy these 15 NFT. And you do so in one transaction. Or there are people that are building games and they pack like, you know, they pack transactions for a minute and then they execute all these transactions. In one transaction, you can do like 50 operations if you want. Uh, so that, that's multi-code, which I think in terms of UX is, you know, it, it, it's amazing. But you can do other cool stuff. You can do session keys, for example. Session keys is, again, something that we launched, I would say, three years ago on Ethereum, on Argent Vault. Nobody cared, of course. It was way too early. We called them DAP keys by then. Uh, and now we are refreshing that idea on, on, on StackNet uh, because I think the ecosystem is, is you know, it is, is now right or the timing is, is better. And the idea of session keys is, again, because you are a smart contract wallet, you can have multiple keys that can be authorized to do transactions. And so you can imagine that when you go to a DAP, the DAP will generate a key locally, 
And you, as the owner, you approve that key to do certain operation for a certain period of time. So you can actually sign and say, okay, I, I approve that key to call only that contract and these three methods for 20 minutes. You sign that, now your wallet will accept transaction from that keys if they are within that constraint. And why is that important? Because if you think of on-chain gaming, for example, when you play a game, an on-chain game, every time you do an action, you need to sign a transaction, which is, of course, very painful. And every time you, you, know, you have an interaction, you're kicked out of the game. With session keys, you can imagine going to a game. At the start of your session, the game asks you, you know, can you approve a key for 20 minutes that, will, that can only do this, 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 and that? You say, okay. And then for 20 minutes, you can actually play your game, which will interact and send transactions, but you don't need to approve anything on your wallet. So again, I think that's a, an amazing way to improve the user experience of a lot of, a lot of applications. So that's more in the UX front. Of course, if you go to security, you can have a social recovery that I'm sure we'll discuss later. So there's a lot of UX improvement that come from the ability to orchestrate transactions and to have a, a smart contract as your main account. Yeah, no, I think this is going to be huge for, for UX. And I'm glad you brought up session keys because I think that's something that's important for like DAP developers, developers to, to know about because that's, that's something that like mirrors what people are used to in their Web2 development stuff, right? They're used to that. Right. So the idea that we yeah. can have that in a Web3 native way is, is actually pretty cool. Um, beyond, so I, we'll get, I think that it's important to get into social recovery and, and some of the things you're doing there and how you actually implement that in, in a couple of minutes. But is there anything else that Adapt developers should know about integrating like smart contract wallet functionality into, into what they're building? Like, for example, if, 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 uh, if I'm building an Adapt, and I come to the Argent ecosystem and I say, hey, Julian, like, you know, I want to take full advantage of what Argent has to offer when someone connects their, their wallet to my application. What would you tell them? What other things should they be thinking about to maximize the quality of the UX? So that's a very good question. It's a very important one uh, because at Argent, we've suffered for that, from that. And, and some of our users have suffered from that as well because we are, we've been, we are incompatible with some dApps still because of that. And actually, the, the difference, they're very, very little. So if you want to support smart contract wallet, the main thing you need to do is stop using EC Recover. Why? Because smart contract, they cannot sign transactions. And actually, many DAP, they use signatures, of course, to validate certain things, off-chain signature. If you go to a DEX, sometimes you will sign a, a mark, an order, for example, to trade an asset. And so you provide a signature. And with the NEOA, you sign with your key. And the key is directly linked to your identity. And so it, it's a common pattern to use EC Recover, either in smart contract or to use it off-chain in your DAP. There are some DAP that want you to prove that you, you control the account that you claim to be when you log in. And so they will ask you to just to sign a message, for example, to prove that. So you say, my account is you know, 0x123. And then they ask you to sign something with the corresponding private key to make sure that you control 0x123. But that works if you have a key. If you're a smart contract wallet, you cannot do that because the smart contract cannot sign. However, the smart contract has some keys that can sign on his behalf. And so if you want to support smart contract wallet, instead of do doing EC recover, you should support an EIP called EIP 1271, which basically adds a method 
to smart contracts accounts, which is called is valid signature. So that means that the DAP, whether it's a smart contract or off-chain, instead of verifying locally using EC Recover and then concluding, well, this signature does not correspond to the identity I was given, what you need to do is that you need to call this identity with the signature and say, is this a valid signature for yourself? And so the account contract will tell you, yes, this was signed by one of my authorized keys. Uh, and so that's mostly the only thing that DAP developers need to do. And the thing is that it's very simple. Right? Instead of doing, doing EC Recover, you just use is valid signature. Actually, if you, if you go to OpenZeppelin, they actually have an implementation of that called uh, the signature checker, which if you use that in your smart contract, instead of using ECDSA.sol, uh, which is a contract that a lot of people use to verify signature, you replace that by signature checker and it will do that check. So it will check with EC, uh, with, uh, you know, it will check with EC Recover, and if it fails, it will, it will try to see if it's a smart contract and use the IP 1271. So supporting smart contract wallet can be as simple as just, you know, changing one line in your, in your application. Hmm. Yeah, that is, that is actually much simpler than I thought it was, right? I mean, I think, uh, so we, for example, at Superfluid, we have a, we have a front end, right? And we've had um, some people that are, are building SDKs and interesting tools say, hey, look, I want to, I want to use my smart contract wallet in, in your DAP. I thought it'd be more involved than just either. And you could even make it so that you provide an option, right? You could have like connect with a smart contract wallet, connect with a regular wallet yeah. if you want. That's probably not ideal. Ideally, it would just work out of the box. But yeah. that's a good maybe stepping stone for people. Because yeah, you can try both. You can assume it's a new A. And if it fails, you assume it's a smart contract wallet. And if it fails, you know that the signature is invalid. So you don't even need to ask the user what you're using. You can just try one and then try try the other. So yes, very. That's it, it's very simple. There's another thing that that needs to be removed to support smart contract. What it is the use of transaction.origin. So there are some DAP that actually don't want the account to be a smart contract for some reason. And so in the smart contract, they will check transaction origin and and see if transaction origin corresponds to the account. Which again, if you're a smart contract, you know doesn't work. So as a DAP developer, there's these two things. Never use transaction.origin, but in any case, I think it's an anti-pattern in Solidity, so you should never have to use transaction origin. Uh, and then use EIP-1271. And DAP developers, if they want to understand more, just go to EIP-1271. was written by Pedro from Wallet Connect. Uh, it is it, very simple. So yeah, definitely, I think that the work to support smart contract wallet is, is actually very little. Interesting. And I think I think part of this comes down to the fact that there's just so much going on and there's actually there, there are so many good uses of, te of technology, so many new things you can integrate that would help someone's UX. They just don't always know it exists, right? Because everyone is just trying to keep up with everything at the same time. Um, yeah. And, and I think the ecosystem was built with the paradigm of, you know, EOAs. And, and everybody assume, I mean, a lot of people still don't know what a smart contract, what it is. They all think that an account is an EOA and it's so engraved in everybody's psychology that it, it results that, you know, it's everywhere, this assumption in the way people build dApps, the way we build the tools, the way we think about accounts. And so, yeah, a lot of people, you need to actually talk to them and explain, you know, that smart contract account is different. And then most of them will rapidly upgrade their, their application. But of course, that requires some, you know, some a lot of uh, evangelism in a sense to make sure that people start building 
And, and ideally, people should think, no, they shouldn't think a smart contract wallet as an afterthought. They should think about that when they start building their apps. Okay, there's actually two types of accounts. And then from if you start with that, you know, with that in mind, it's very easy to support both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. Um, so how about for people that are, if you are a skeptic listening, uh, are there any good examples? You mentioned like games using session keys. Um, what are some other good examples of workflows, UX you've seen that make use of smart contract wallets? It just wouldn't be possible with this EOA based model. Have you, do you have any good examples top of mind? Well, I mean, for me, multi-call, approve and call. Go to, go to Uniswap or to any, you know, DEX on Ethereum, then do the same on StackNet, and you'll notice that on StackNet, everything is one click. Basically, with multi-call, every single interaction, every action is one click. You want to do something, one click. You want to actually do something complex, it's still one click. So I think if people go and try it, they will rapidly realize that it's, it's a game changer. So for mm-hmm. me, I would say, yes, definitely multi-call. Uh, Session keys is very cool, but it's still it's still not implemented yet in the sense that you know it, it's still experimental. Even in the stagnant ecosystem, there are some dApps that are starting to, to to leverage it, but it's still a bit too early. I think it will be there in, in, in a few months. Uh, but yeah, for me, it's that or social recovery. Again, when people understand, they realize that they have this, they have an account fully you know self-custodial, but they never had to write anything on a piece of paper. I think when people get that and they actually see it in practice, we have a lot of users of Argent there. You know, they think Argent is cool. Okay, they give it a try. And then someday they lose their phone or their phone is broken. And when they realize that they can get it, you know, get back access to their account in a few clicks, I think that's a, you know, magic moment for a lot of people. So I do think that both multi-call and, and social recovery are extremely powerful. Yeah, so let's actually go into social recovery then. Um, how does how do you guys actually implement social recovery? Right, like I I conceptually understand what it what it is, right? Um, instead of having a like a private key to get back into my wallet, I have, I guess I I guess maybe I give a key to a set of people that I know, and I rely on them if something happens. Like I would I actually have never really like looked at a, a true implementation of it. So I'd love for you to walk us okay, through. Okay, so yeah, yeah, so. On a smart contract account, there's, as, as we already discussed, there's a key. Let, let's call it the owner key, right? It's the key that controls the account that can call the smart contract and say, you know, send this token or interact with that DAP. So there's some key that controls your account. And in the model of Argent, it's typically on your phone. So on your phone, there is a key and it's the main key. It controls the account, right? The problem is that if you lose that key, typically you, 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 you're doomed. And that's why you, you tend to write that on a piece of paper. The idea of social recovery is to say, let's add more keys to your account, right? And we call these keys guardians. And these keys, they cannot trigger transactions. So they cannot send tokens. They cannot do anything on the account with the exception of a few security operations. And one of these security operations is to collectively replace the owner key. So your guardians collectively, if a majority of them approve that operation, you can replace the owner key with another one. And so the flow as a user is that I have my owner key, I have my wallet, I have some guardians, I lose my, you know, I lose my phone, say, so I lose the main key. I actually contact these guardians and I say, can you give, can you give me that access? You know, I've reinstalled Argent on a new phone. This is my new key that should control the account. 
And so they will make that specific transaction collectively and they will reprogram the account with a new owner key. The, the, the experience for us, we really wanted to mimic, I think, user flows that people understand. And for example, if you think of your bank, like your credit card is like a way to control your account. If you lose your credit card, typically you call your bank and you say, hey, I've lost my card. Can you send me a new one? And then suddenly you have this new card that controls your account. With social recovery, instead of using a centralized bank, you choose who's acting as your bank. And so it can be yourself with a hardware wallet. It can be three friends. It can be a service that you trust. It can be a combination of all this, but you really decide what's the procedure to give you back access to your account. Interesting. Makes sense. Makes sense. And I guess it, it also makes sense that you, it can also be yourself, right? It could just be you generating keys to... Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. That, that's interesting. For example, yeah, myself, I use three guardians. One of them is a hardware wallet that I control. One of them is a friend. And a third one is the the service that Argent provides. So at, at Argent, we provide a service which basically keep these keys secured and you can authenticate to this service with email and, you know, an SMS. Uh, and so for me, I have these three guardians and two of them are sufficient to make, a trans to make that specific transaction if I was to lose my, you know, lose my phone, for example. So you can really, it can be a combination of, of, of different parties. Interesting. Do, do you get to choose like, like the, the ratio there? Like, like, can I choose, all right, I have nine and it's six of nine or five of nine. Like, is that configurable or is it, is it set out of the box? No, it's, it's a majority. So you can choose how much guardians you add, but there needs to be a majority approving that transaction. So yeah, we could. We could have programmed the account to let you choose that. But, but we decided, you know, to make it, uh, to, to fix the ratio that you needed. So with Arjun, it needs to be a majority. Gotcha. Makes sense. I mean, that basically provides a forgot password uh, option for losing your private key, which is kind of important. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What about it? What about if somebody gets like? I guess I'm, I would assume that the use case if someone gets hacked would work the same, right? I mean, I, I, what's probably going to happen if you get hacked is everything's going to be gone in in a second. But I would assume this works the same way, right? Where you basically, if you get hacked, you know you're hacked, you can generate a new key, right? And the other one is nullified? Like, how, did, how does that work? So, yeah, so actually, guardians can do two things. We discussed about, about recovery, so giving you back access to your account, but your guardians are also there to approve transaction, to co-sign transaction. And again, it, it, it can be different depending on, on the wallet on, on Ethereum and the wallet we have on StarkNet, but the idea is to say that for risky operation, Right or operations that are out of the ordinary or that the wallet consider risky, you need to have approval from your guardians. So that means that as a user, I can say I can send you funds and I can say, you know, I trust Sam. I put it in my 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 trusted list. Every time I send you, I interact with you. I can sign a loan. But if I'm sending funds to someone I've never interacted with, then the account, the smart contract, will require signatures from your guardians. And so that means that if someone steals my phone and steals my private key, there's nothing he can do. He can send funds to friends, or maybe he can you know, swap tokens with the DEX that is approved, but it, there's no value leaving, right? He will exchange DAI for ETH at a certain, I mean, at the, the fair market price, but there's no value leaving the wallet. If he's trying to, to, to make value leave the wallet, he will need approval from a majority of the guardians. 
So again, this model of guardian can be used for recovery, but it can also be used for uh, validating you know, large transfer or unusual operations. And for example, on StarkNet, we combine that, we call it fraud monitoring with 2FA. Because you can imagine that you have a guardian, only one guardian, and you give that key to a service that will now inspect every operation. So every time you want to do an operation, you will send the call data to that service that based on whatever business logic you define or the service defines, if it deems the transaction is secure, it will co-sign, act as a guardian. But if he thinks the transaction is unsecure or is a bit out of the ordinary, it would just ask you to confirm your identity with a second factor and then make the transaction. So suddenly this concept of guardian is also a gatekeeper to make sure that even if your key is compromised, your funds are safe. And for us, that was something that, I mean, we wanted to have from day one. I mean, having worked in security, you know that bad things will happen. You know, it's not a question of when, it's a, it's a fact. Like, even if you use an iPhone, it is possible at some point that someone will have access to your private key. Maybe, maybe it's Apple, maybe it's a government, maybe, you know, it's a hacker. So we really built our smart contract, assuming that, you know, you can lose your key and your key can be compromised. And based on that, what can we do to make sure that your funds are, are safe at all times? And so the Guardian model is really a way to enable that. That's really cool. The fraud monitoring thing is fascinating too, because it's like fraud monitoring that you can set up for yourself. It's personally configurable. Yeah. It's not deferring to some other financial institution. Now, some people in, in, in life are always going to be comfortable with that. But for the crypto native people that want this kind of control, it's, it's super interesting that you can provide that. Um, yeah, I, I actually didn't, I didn't, I didn't think about that. that that's also very cool. Um, Okay, so you, you've made a couple of mentions to StarkNet. And uh, I think the reason for that is that StarkNet made the, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but they, they made the, the default wallet a smart contract wallet, as did ZK Sync, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. So yes, I'm, I mentioned StarkNet, but we're, we're actually working with ZK Sync and StarkNet in parallel uh, because those two Layer twos, they combine two things which for us are essential. One is that there are ZK rollups. I wouldn't say that as essential. We like optimistic rollups as well, but we, we need a way to scale, basically, a, a way to scale, a platform that scales, right? I mean, we want to build you know, a, a wallet and, and, and applications for billions of users, so we need to have a foundation that scales, and that requires layer twos, and we think that ZK rollup is the right technology for that. So ZK rollup is really a way to scale the technology, but then you also need to scale the user experience. And what we believe at Arjun, we believe for, for the past four or five years that you need a smart contract to have that, or you need account abstraction. And actually both ZK Sync V2 and StarkNet, they are launching with native account abstraction. So instead of ERC 4337, which is at the application level, it's like it brings some of the components of 4337 one layer down to the protocol. And so that means concretely that on StarkNet, Every account is a smart contract. There's no EOA if you want. You can have keys that can sign, but by definition, the top-level account, the entity that can trigger transaction and pay for, for transaction fee and so on, is a smart contract that can be customized and configured. And of course, that gets us very excited because it's the perfect model for us. It's exactly our model, but this time it's really engraved at the protocol level. Interesting. So... How do you think about this then, right? We we talk to a fair number of people on the show and a fair number of people listen to us that are like, they're involved in these EIP wars, right? They uh, they lobby for their favorite 
new change. And honestly, like people have good reason to. They feel very strongly about a specific new thing they want added or changed at the actual like protocol level of the EVM. And I'm assuming, you know, throughout your career, you've been involved in lots of these conversations, at least with regard to account abstraction. Uh, I'll ask you specifically about the uh, the account abstraction thing in a second, but what what's it been like being involved in these EIP conversations? Was it what you expected? Uh, was it did it get more political than you anticipated? I'd love your take from one person's point of view. Yeah, no, that, that's a good question. To be to be fair, I haven't been as involved as I should have been, probably. So at Argent, we are kind of focused on shipping. And sometimes we look at this, you know, I wouldn't say from, from a side, like EIP 1271, you know, for, for, for validating a signature, we've been part of that conversation. We were not the main actors, but we've been part of that conversation. Same with account abstraction, EIP 4337. I was, you know, I was involved in the Telegram group where a lot of people discussed, but in all fairness, I didn't contribute much, right? I was there, it was very nice, but I I very little contribution, if none, but enough to understand, you know, what, what was happening. And in a few occasions, we could try to, you know, to give uh, the perspective of, of Arjun and of an existing smart contract wallet. Uh, but yes, of course, these EIPs are, are quite political. So I mentioned today there's kind of two approaches. One is to make smart contract like top-level account, and that's 29.98, and then the, the recent 4.337. But I also mentioned that there's the alternative approach, which is giving smart contract feature or features of account abstraction to existing EOAs, EIP 30.74. And of course, this is pushed by, you know, consensus, because of course it makes sense for MetaMask or for people that have a lot of users that have EOS today to find a way to give them access to, to that future. But so irrespective of what I think is the right approach, what personally, what makes us first, what makes me very happy is that today it's no longer a question of do we need account abstraction? Everybody agrees that you need account abstraction. Even the people at MetaMask are now pushing and saying we need to have account abstraction. So for us, that's already a big change. When we started four or five years ago, people looked at us like, you know, crazy people. You know, there's no need to make smart contract wallet. They would have bugs. You know, it would be more expensive. This will never work. I think we've proven that it brings a lot of value. So for, fast forward four years today, four or five years, no, everybody agrees you need to have a contract fraction. So for me, that's already a great victory. And then, of course, within that, there are people, everybody will push for his own, you know, own way of doing this. I don't think there are, most of them are actually not, incompatible. They can be complementary. Uh, but what is clear for me is that we need to have account abstraction at the protocol level. I think if we, if we, if we, and, and for example, that's why at Arjun, we are not that engaged with 4337. We are engaged in the, like the theoretical discussion. We are pushing it because we push account abstraction in general, but so far, I don't think we'll build a, a wallet supporting 4337. The reason is that as I mentioned, 437 is just a better way to make, to make smart contract wallet like Argent. But that means it will have also the, the same limitation that we've you know, experienced the past four years. One of them is this incompatibility with some dApps. So we mentioned you know, validating signatures. I hope that gradually, because of 4337, people will start to understand, and I think people will be more aware of smart contract wallet, and hopefully that will improve. But I do feel that it will still be an ecosystem where a lot of people think in terms of, of EOAs. Um, 
And then there's the second factor that smart contract wallets are always a bit more expensive than UA because we have that logic happening on chain. That means transactions are a bit more expensive. If transactions are very cheap because you know there's not much activity, that's fine. And that's why, for example, at Argent, we used to subsidize transactions because they were so cheap, you know, it made sense for us. But of course, there was like, you know, the gas war of, you know, of two years ago, and then transactions started costing, you know, $100. And if it costs you $100 with your MetaMask, it will cost you, you know, $150 or, or, or with your smart contract wallet. And then people will start to say, well, this is, you know, that, that makes a difference. So I think, and that's why I think, yes, account abstraction should be at, you know, the protocol level so that it can really be optimized and that everybody is paying the same price. Uh, and, and that's why for us, for example, we're pushing for native account abstraction at the protocol level. I do think it will come, uh, uh, on layer two, sorry. I do think it will come to Ethereum at some point, but we do feel that layer twos are actually a great opportunity to accelerate that process. You know, of course, I mean, at layer one, there's a lot of stake, there's a lot of stakeholders, there's a lot of value. There are some political games between you know people that have existing AOAs and so on. Layer twos they start from a you know from a blank page, and so that's why I would say for the past year we've been really pushing and advocating for account abstraction at the protocol level and on layer twos. Interesting. Yeah, I was gonna follow up and ask you like, should we try to eventually implement it at the protocol level? And you answered that question. Uh, I think I think broadly you're, you're right, but it it is one of those things where it's a. Uh, that does that does change some things that I think again there are, there are people that think about the EVM in a certain way they thought about it for a certain way for a very long time and there's just inertia there, right? So sometimes having a blank split slate is is what you need. Uh, no, no, of course, there's, and, and that's why I think again I think using layer twos is a great opportunity for that. And for example, we are you know in contact and and, and discussing with the Optimism team. Because they're working on the OP stack, which is kind of a you know a way for anybody to instantiate you know an optimistic rollup, basically. And there's different components. There is a consensus layer, an execution layer, and then you have a fraud proof or valid of yeah, fraud proof layer, right? And they're kind of trying to make that to automate that that process and make it very simple. So what we are discussing with them is like, let's first work on on. An, an EIP version of ERC4337. So bring ERC4337 to the protocol you know, level on the EVM, and then let's include that in the OP stack in one version of the execution layer so that now we can actually spin out, everybody can spin out very easily an optimistic rollup, a version of optimism that supports account abstraction at the protocol level. So something that is kind of EVM compatible, but, you know, uh, using native account abstraction. So I do think that we should use these layer twos as, as test, test beds. And then, yes, maybe Optimism will actually you know, implement that in their main main version. And then, yes, we can bring it to L1 when it's been battle tested and everybody is convinced that it's actually the right way to go. So uh, we fully understand that there's a lot of inertia on L1. That makes sense. And so that's why I think we should really push for account abstraction to happen first on layer twos. Makes sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. Two final questions for you here. One kind of specific and one far more general. Uh, I guess this, this first one's still a little general. But as someone who's building a wallet, right, security is incredibly important. Um, how do you and the the rest of the Argent team look at security? Um, do you guys have like a like a process that you go through to try to manage this stuff? Like how do you how do you approach this more generally? We have a lot of smart contract, a lot of a lot of DApp developers listening to this. 
and they like hearing yeah. a, a broad variety of, of approaches. So, I mean, on, on Ethereum, yes, we, we have a clear process. The first thing is that our smart contract needs to be open source, you know, and verified by all that's like, you know, that that's given number one. The way we worked on, on Ethereum has always been, of course, we need to have reviews internally, and then we need to have external auditors. And so on Ethereum, we've never pushed a single line of, of code on chain that was not audited by external auditors. Uh, typically for, for major release, we actually use two different companies, so two independent auditing companies. For smaller release, we may work with only one, one auditing company. So yeah, for us, the process is really that. First, make it open source so that everybody can inspect, have a bug bounty program, so that if someone finds something, they are incentivized to actually contact you so that you can address it. So I think that's the benefit of, of open sourcing. And then finally, audit every line of code by external auditors. And choosing these auditors is very important. There's a lot of people that do audits. Of, in the end, it, it depends on the quality of the auditor. And so you need to find you know, really good one with a good track records. They tend to be way too expensive. So if there are some auditors listening, honestly asking for $30,000 $30, for a week of work, I think it's, it's a bit insane. And unfortunately, that means that there's a lot of smaller projects that cannot af afford the cost of auditing their contract. So I do feel that nothing justifies that cost. And in my opinion, I don't want to piss them off because we'll still work with them. <laughs> but I do think it would be beneficial for the ecosystem if auditing smart contract was actually cheaper. So that more team could actually, you know, include that as part of their, of their process, uh, because but, but but it is required. I mean, if you are a serious, you know, building a serious DAP, a serious project, you need to have your smart contract, you know, audited by external auditors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It, it does create this weird dynamic, right? How how else do you try to select auditors? Um, is it strictly off of like past work? Uh, is it the initial conversation you have? Like, how have you decided to vet specific auditors in the past? Yeah, so. I think of our, our first audit was with a company called Solidified. Uh, and as part of that, there's actually three auditors that, that audited our smart contract. Uh, and then they actually left that company to create their own auditing company. And we've continued working with them. And I think that's been an amazing experience. Um, and actually now there's one of them is actually part of the Gnosis team, which is again, amazing. You could see, I mean, a lot of people saw Gnosis as, as our competitors, but actually our main auditors for our smart contract is working for Gnosis and that's perfectly fine. So for us, it, it's, it's like relationship, right? We've worked with him, Adam, for, you know, four or five years. And so there's, a, you know, there's trust being built. He knows our contract extremely well. So we've always uh, audit, you know, every single small release we audit with him. And then we did major release with Trail of Bit. So after that, you, you may go, you know, with, the, the big names, because if there are big names, it's also because they're extremely competent. Uh, but so, yeah, I do believe that, first of all, when you do an audit, it depends what you're building, but as a wallet, your features are evolving. And so you need to, you know, upgrade or to have audit like one or twice a year. So I think it's important to have a good relationship with someone. So you actually get the same team auditing your contracts. Uh, so I think for me, for us, that's been very, very important. And then, yes, of course, the big names, they have great tools and they have extremely competent people. They tend to be even more expensive than the others, of course. Uh, but again, at Argent, we've always felt that, you know, we, we should never be cheap on security. Security is our number one priority. And so we've always wanted to have the best, you know, looking at, at, at our contract. For example, at, with, with, you know, Trade of Bit, we had Samsung. 
uh, you know, reviewing our contract. I mean, you cannot get better than that, right? Uh, and so, of course, that gives confidence into into your, your your contract. But I also think, as part of security, the second point I think is time. Uh, the, your contract needs to be battle tested, uh, and and I think that's a mistake we've seen too often, specifically in the DeFi summer. People like launch smart contract, and the day after, like within 24 hours, they have like you know half a billion dollars. This is completely insane. I think you you, you build trust with time as well. For example, our contract or like the Nozis Safe, for example, uh, I mean, we've, you know, both, I mean, we've never lost a single dollar. We've been around for four or five years. At Arjun, at some point, we had a billion dollars. I think Nozis Safe has much more now. And there's never been a single dollar being, you know, being lost or, or, or stolen. So I do think that time is also a good way to, to build credibility and trust into your, your contracts. Well said. Well said. I think, uh, yeah, thanks for sharing some of the, the advice about auditors. I think that's, that's not necessarily widely distributed knowledge about how to actually vet and select auditors. So I think people appreciate you sharing some of that. Um, okay, last question for you. Uh, again, far more general. You know, the the markets, you've seen markets that are good, you've seen markets that are bad, right? You you're, you seem like you're just gonna keep building. Uh, but what do, you, what do you hope the industry looks like in, in 10 years? Like, how do, you, how do you hope things pan out over the rest of the 2020s? Yeah, that's a that's a very important question, of course. Um, what I what I wish to see that what I hope we'll accomplish as an ecosystem is actually solving you know real problems for real people. As much as I love you know all that we've built so far, I kind of feel that we are we've built stuff for people within the ecosystem. I mean, you know, DeFi or, or speculation is not, in my opinion, the most interesting use case. It's not solving anybody's problems. NFTs are, are great, but they're not solving anybody's problem. I do feel the blockchain as a technology has an amazing you know, potential to have a real impact on the world. And so what I hope is that as an ecosystem, we'll actually start you know, solving real problems for real people that are not the people in the ecosystem today. Uh, uh, and of course, for that, I think a lot of things need to happen, right? You need to have a, a good technology that can scale. And I think we are gradually getting there. You need to have a good user experience so that actually people that are less tech savvy can use the technology without having to make, you know, bad trade-offs because that's what we've seen so far. People that are not tech savvy, they're kind of pushed to centralized exchange and, and you know, custodial solution because the user experience of said custody is generally too complicated. But I do think that through, you know, account abstraction, smart contract wallet, we can really solve that. And so it, it's, it's a normal path, right? You need to build a good foundation of a technology that scales, that's usable. And I think naturally some, some real use cases will emerge out of this. But so if you ask me, you know, what I hope to see in five or 10 years is yes, it, it's the blockchain technology being used by real people for, you know, for, for real applications, real problems. Uh, and, and ideally, without even knowing they are using the blockchain. Like today, most people, they, you know, they don't need to understand that you, you don't need to know you're using TCP, HTTPS, or, you know, a peer-to-peer network. You just want to do something, go to an application, and it should work and it should be secure. So I really hope that, you know, that will be the status of the blockchain in, in a few years. I love it. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly on a, on a lot of those points. But yeah, hopefully smart contract wallets are a big part of it. And you know, I wish I wish teams like yours, I wish teams like uh, like Gnosis, for example, as well, and and everybody else working on it, a lot of success. Um, but yeah, thank you again for coming out today. It's been a lot of fun. 
thanks for having me. Enjoy the chat a lot. Awesome. And final, final question. Where where do you want people to go online when they hear this, right? Do you want people to go to the Argent website, uh, follow you on Twitter? Where would you like to point people? Yeah, I would say go to the Argent website and, and, and try StockNet. I do think StockNet is where some of these ideas are being pioneered and they are most, you know, advanced. Uh, so go check ArgentX. It's a wallet for StockNet. Uh, if you want to check what you know what you can do at Starknet, we have a DAP called Dapland, dapland.com. Oh, excuse me. Oh. me yep. So yeah, go to Dapland, dapland.com. Go to 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 the Argent Argent website. You'll find all the information you need. We have a lot of blog posts to explain everything that we've been doing so far, uh, and then you will have link to either install the Argent application for you know for Ethereum or zkSync v1 or to install the browser extension for Starknet and, and just check by yourself. I think that's the best. Awesome. Sounds good. Way, well, hey, thank you again, Julian. Thanks, Sam. Cheers.